That you're doing well. Uh, let me take a moment before we get into the sermon for me to explain just, just kind of uh, how we think about preaching a little bit. Um, there's two ways to kind of address, uh, and there's two starting points maybe for, for a sermon. One of the starting points of the sermon would be to say, I have something that I want to communicate to people. Where in the Bible does it say what I want to communicate? And, and so, for instance, uh, I want to talk about what an elder is. And then I have to go and look at a bunch of places where it says uh, what an elder is. Uh, the other way to think about preaching is to say, um, I, I want to start with the Word of God and, and maybe like we did in, in the book of, uh, of 1 Corinthians. And then you, the way what you're starting with is, what does it say here? And then you just say it to people, right? It's called expository preaching. You don't start with wanting to tell people something and make your point and then go to the Bible to help you make your point. You just start with going, what does 1 Corinthians say? And then you just make the point that's there. And uh, my favorite is the latter of the two. My favorite is what we call expository preaching, which is to say, uh, we're going we're to start with the Word of God. We're going to work our way through the Word of God. And we're going to try to say what it says there as best as we can. And um, we took a break from that, and sometimes it's necessary to, and, and it's, not the, it's not the end of the world. It's not my favorite, but there will be times where we, we want to talk about stewardship, and therefore we have to say, where in the Bible does it address stewardship, and, and, and do it that way. Um, but we're back doing expository preaching, and we're going to be doing that for a long time now. Here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing Jude the next two weeks, then we're going to do Second and Third John, and then by the time we get to Christmas... We're going to get into the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to try to time it uh, so that we're in Matthew for the, the, the Christmas story, and then we just continue through the Gospel over the next several months, and there'll be a lot of work to us to, or for us to do there. Um, but we're going to begin our study today on the book of Jude, and I wonder how many people in this room have read the book of Jude. It is not very long at all. It is one short letter. It's one chapter. Only 25 verses. <clears throat> but Jude has a very important and a very powerful message. The, the book of Jude is kind of like a canary in the coal mines. You know the canary in the coal mines, how, how miners used to take with them into the, into the mines, these caged canaries. And, um, and what they would use those canaries for is those canaries would be an early indicator for danger. Because the canary was more sensitive to like the deadly gases that were released through mining. And so if you're a miner there and you've got your canary and your canary gets sick or it dies, you know that danger's at hand and it's time for you to get out of the mine. Um, Jude is the last, so of all the epistles we've read in, in the New Testament, Jude is the very last epistle in the Bible. And it's positioned right before the book of Revelation. And this last epistle is a warning to the church. That warning is this, right? That the greatest dangers to the gospel of Jesus, the greatest dangers to the faith of the church are not found outside of the church. 
but rather the greatest dangers to gospel truth are found from those who creep into the church and they take for themselves the name and the mantle of Jesus. They're going to call you brother. They're going to call themselves Christian. And, and they, call, they may even call God their father. Maybe they used to believe the, the clear teachings of Jesus, but for whatever reason, they disagree with us now on the central truths of the gospel. And they've started this kind of alternate way of thinking about Jesus. And what makes this so dangerous is that while the church is trying to contend with the world to define truth, the church of Jesus, because of these people, does not have a united front. And I think you know what I mean. There are, there are churches who, when it comes to defining truth, instead of standing with Scripture, they're standing with the world. It's a whole church, whole pastors. And, and they're saying, uh, like, we're still a church, though. We, we still use the name of Jesus. We've just changed it a little bit. And the term we use to describe them is often the term apostate. Which means to an apostate is someone who has who's rebelled or renounced their beliefs. And the problem with the church today is we have people who they, they rebel and they renounce their beliefs, but they still keep the name of Jesus. And they still call themselves a church. And it appears to all who look from the outside that the church does not have a unified front on truth because false teachers of the church, it appears to the world that the church disagrees with itself on what is truth. And so the book of Jude is so very relevant and important because what it's going to do is it's going to warn uh, churches about false teachers. And it calls that the rest of us, all of us in here, would contend for the faith which was once delivered for the saints. Um, let's jump right into our reading this morning. We're going to read seven verses. We're going to do our work on seven verses today from the book of Jude, one through seven. I invite you to stand if you're able in reverence to the word of God read. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your revelation found in your word that you've chosen to, to teach us about yourself and your character and what you love by the inspiration of, of the word of God. Uh, pray that we would submit our lives to it as we stand for its reading today in Christ's name. Amen. Join with me, beginning in the first verse. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, after, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Church, the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's break this letter down a little bit and see what we can discover. Verse 1 says this. Jude, a, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God and the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is an introduction, and it establishes both who wrote the letter and who the letter is written to. The author, of course, is a man named Jude. Uh, but, but Jude was a pretty common name in this time. Uh, there's a lot of Judes in the Bible. In Hebrew, the name Jude is, is related to the name Judah, and in Greek, it's linked to the name Judas, right? And, and so there's all kinds of Judas and Judases in the Bible. So which guy wrote this book? The author of this book introduces himself as Jude, and he says, a servant of Jesus and the brother of James. Now, James needs no introduction in those days. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem, and James just so happened to be the half-brother of Jesus. And so if you're thinking about this, and Jude is the brother of James, that also means that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Look at Matthew uh, 13.55. Put it on the screens. It says this, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? You see there both James and Judas listing, listed there. Uh, that would then we understand to be the Jude who wrote this letter. What's interesting here is, is Jude doesn't see fit to introduce himself as, as Jesus' half-brother. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother. He says what? He says, I'm a servant of Jesus, which I guess he's showing great humility there. Now we need to know uh, who Jude is writing this letter to. Um, he, he doesn't list a single person's name, nor does he address the letter to a single church. It seems Jude is writing kind of, in a sense, to all churches, and, and we begin to understand that this would be one of those letters in the New Testament that would move around from church to church to church. But he does tell us something about his audience. Look what he says about his audience. It's again in verse 1. Jude's audience are those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And you can preach a, you can preach a whole sermon just on those three ideas, couldn't you, of the idea of being called, beloved by God, and kept for Jesus Christ. The Christians are called by God. Uh, we're called out from the world, and, and God gives us an inner call of his Holy Spirit. That call awakens our faith. God does this for his own glory, and because God loves us, God's people are beloved by him. What else does Jude call them? The third thing he calls them after saying that, they are, that they're called and that they're beloved is he says that they are kept. And I guess a good question to ask you would be, what do you think it means when Jude refers to Christians as those who are kept? 
This is going to be a really central theme in the book of Jude, the idea that God's people are kept. This is how Jesus speaks about keeping his people. Ready? John 10, 27 through 30. Jesus is going to talk about keeping his people. You'll understand this. He says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, this is what you need to hear about him keeping you, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he goes on, it's not written there, but he goes on to say, I and the Father are one. Right? And so we talk about Jesus keeping his people. It's that no one can snatch them out of our hands. Judah is referring to a confidence that we can have in Christ that God has called you, that you're his beloved, and that he will keep you until the end. You are, you are his. And what it says there, actually, if you look at Judah, it says you're kept for Jesus. Almost this idea that, that, that God's gift to Jesus is you, and, and who's going to take you out of God's hand? You are kept for Jesus. And you're going to see soon why this is a pretty important way to start this letter. Because uh, he's going to deal with this idea of these apostate people sneaking into the church and perverting the truth of the gospel. But before he gets to them, the foundation he wants to lay in the very introduction is, listen, Christians, you're called, you're beloved, you're going to be kept. But let's talk about these people who are sneaking into the church, right? Verse 3. Right, follow me to verse 3. It says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Um, Jude says that when he sat down, what he really wanted to write about was our common salvation. He said, I just really sat down. I wanted to write about our common salvation, but instead Jude changes his mind. For some reason, uh, Jude finds it necessary to write to all the churches in order to appeal to them for action. And what is his appeal? What does Jude want all the Christians to do in this last epistle of the New Testament? What Jude wants for them is to contend for the faith. Make no mistake, Jude is calling Christians to fight. If you're a contender, you are competing. What does it mean to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints? Well, one thing is that it means that the gospel does not change. You understand this, right? Jude says that the gospel, the message that it was delivered once for all, one revelation for all humanity in all times. The problem is that false teachers changed the truth that was once delivered for all. And so Jude says, Christians, I appeal to you. Get in there and fight for the purity of the gospel. Jude wants you to contend. And, and the Greek word there for contend is, is the root for the English word to agonize. It's the groan of a competitor. It's, it's the groan you make when you're struggling in battle. That's what it means to contend. Make no mistake, the message of Jude is, the wolves are among us trying to change the gospel truth. So get on your feet and get your staff in your hand and prepare to fight them off with agonizing effort. Church, there is a time and a place to make peace. But when people inside the church 
are perverting the gospel, it's time to contend for truth. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude's talking about the church and he's saying that certain people have crept into the church unnoticed and they're now perverting the key truths of the church from the inside. The grace of God, the lordship of Jesus, and we cannot stand by and let this happen. If you remember um, in his, his letter to Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to him. And he's talking about the gospel. And so Paul's telling Timothy, he's like, you have to guard the gospel. It's been entrusted to you. Look at what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus. It's in Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. This is what he says. Paul's talking to the elders of Ephesus. He says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, insiders will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knew this, that from among our own selves you will find insiders twisting the truth. We don't have to look very hard to find this in today's world. I mean, you don't. We have Christian churches who will teach that Christians no longer have to hold to a biblical sexual ethic. We have televangelists who are telling Christians to send them their money and God will make them in turn rich. We have people inside Christian churches Christian churches who are teaching that your good deeds contribute to your salvation. All of these are twisted truths. And it happens because our guard is down. And, you know, listen, I'll point to this, and this should make sense to you, that, that too many Christians are not equipped to spot bad doctrine. And I don't know how you're supposed to contend for the faith when the wolves come in if you can't even spot wrong teaching. Don't you know how many Christians, you can say anything you want about God and Jesus, and, and they, they love it all. Because categorically, you said something about God. It's not that these people are equipped to discern what is good to say about God and what is bad to say about God. But look one more time at verse 4. I want to I prove a point. I want to show you something here. There's, it's, it's got this puzzling little line that I want to explore. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. And here's the, here's the part who long ago were designated for this condemnation. What we learn is that these false teachers who have, who have crept in have been designated for condemnation long ago. So, so who designated them for this condemnation? It's the Lord. What is meant by condemnation here? Well, what do we mean by that? It means the judgment and the wrath of God. You know, if you were there on, on this last Wednesday night, Weston led us in a discussion. Um, we were talking about how Scripture teaches in Ecclesiastes and in Romans and in Jude and over and over and over and over again how, how God has a destiny for all of his people. And sometimes that destiny is salvation. And sometimes that destiny for people is not salvation. 
Jude says here that, that these wolves who deny the truths of the gospel, they were destined for condemnation. And you say, uh, God is love. How would he do such a thing? Let me show you really quickly what the Bible says. And um, instead of wrestling with me, I'll leave you to wrestle with the word of God. Romans 9, 21 through 23. We'll put it on the screens. This is talking about God being the great potter that he is and, and you and I being the vessels that he makes, the, the pottery. And it says this, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump of, of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, God makes some out of the clay which will be saved and some that will not. And this, this may not for you be a feel-good scripture, right? But is it the word of God? And it tells us that God, the potter, has the right to create a destiny over the people that he makes. And that destiny of some is to be a vessel of wrath. And that may seem unfair to you. Maybe that's outside the tradition that you grew up with. But is it the word of God? Who tells you what is true? Does your gut get to tell you what is true? Does the tradition that you grew up with get to tell you what is true? Or is it the word of God that tells you what is true? What Jude says is that these people sneaking into the church were designated for condemnation, and that condemnation involves judgment and punishment. And just in case the churches who's reading this, maybe they forget that God is a God that has a wrath, Jude's going to show, what he's, as he builds his, his argument out now, what he's going to do is he's going to show biblical examples. He's going to look back into history and point to places of God's wrath real quick. His first example is in verse 5, our very next verse. Let's read it together. Now, he wants to remind them, and what he says is, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, if you're, if you're like me and you're kind of going like, Wait, Jesus, what? we know Jesus was part of what was happening in Egypt. We have a triune God. An alternate reading of that also is the Lord. Um, there's, there's two different kind of sources for that. In some sources, it's Jesus. and some sources, it's the Lord. But, but Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, he's talking about um, the Passover, right? Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So really what we're looking at is, is after God freed his people from captivity, he led them to a land that was flowing with milk and honey. You remember this. And God tells the people, what does he tell them to do? He says, take the land. I want you to take the land from the Canaanites. But what did they do? Uh, they became afraid, if you remember the story. They heard reports of giants in Canaan. They didn't trust God enough to take the land. And, and they, they weren't simply doubting their ability to fight giant men. What the Israelites were doubting was the Lord who told them that the victory is already yours. They doubted the Lord. They no longer believed the very words of God, and they were vocal about it. They were defectors. And, and what I hope you see right now is, is what Jude is doing. He's making a comparison between the false teachers who are creeping into the church uh, and those who are of Israel who would no longer be led by God's word and go into the promised land and fight. 
It didn't simply matter if you belonged to Israel. What mattered was your faith. And likewise for Jude, uh, what matters is, is not that you're part of the church. What matters is your faith in, in the word. And in both cases, what awaits the one who does not believe is the judgment of God. His next example, because he's got three here. His next example is going to move to the heavenly hosts. He's going to move to heaven. And suggests that even among the heavenly hosts, some fail to contend for the faith and deny the lordship of Jesus. That he's talking about the angels, right? He's going to talk about kind of fallen angels. So look at verse 6. It says this. And the angels who do not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And this, this is an interesting example because Jude says that there were angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority. Whose authority were the angels under? They were under the authority of the Lord, right? And these angels rejected that authority and they left their proper dwelling place, it says. Where, where did they leave? They left heaven. And they became defectors. They became apostates. And what awaits those angels who reject the authority of the Lord? Look again at verse 6. We'll just read it together. What awaits them? The Lord has kept them in chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. The moral of the story is this, is that, that those angels will be judged. It doesn't matter if, if you're, really anyone will be judged. It, it doesn't matter if, if you're part of Israel or you're part of the church or even if you're part of the heavenly host. If you deny the truth of the gospel, judgment is waiting. The truth is judgment awaits all of us, right? I mean, it's not just bad people who will be judged. We will all be judged. But those who keep their faith in Jesus face the judgment of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the hope that we have. Jude, Jude's really not going into a lot of detail in these stories, is he? He's just kind of like, like one verse, remember, one verse, remember. And, and he, the next one he, he's got us going through is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, let me, let me ask you, what point is, is Jude making again? Let's, let's be reminded his point. Jude is illustrating that those people who have crept into the church are perverting the grace of God and they're denying the lordship of Jesus. And those people were designated for condemnation, much like the people in these stories. Okay, that's, that's, that's where he's going with all this. This last example is Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's read it together. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah... And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's keep this text up if we can for a moment. Just, if we just keep it up. I remember when I studied this text at Princeton, my, my professor, he went out of his way to say probably three or four times in the class that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not a sexual sin. What had had broken down and what had happened there was was a sin of violence in Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't the the sexual sin. And and you could see why he wanted to do that. Because at the time, at Princeton Theological Seminary where I was attending, the registrar registrar was a homosexual man. And the the seminary had definitely adopted a tolerance and a a view that was different than what Scripture said. And so they had to create a narrative. And the narrative they created was this, this wasn't God's wrath upon human sexuality. This was God's wrath against violence. 
They were dead set on finding some way to change the word of God that was given once and all to the saints. Unfortunately, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, teaches otherwise. Right? Look what it says. Jude directly links sexual immorality to God's wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. He says it's because they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires that they then served as an example for God's wrath. So what I want to do this morning is, is review and see if we can apply some things. Jude writes, uh, he writes this letter to churches. And, and as he writes, he's sounding an alarm to these churches that there are some who have snuck into their churches who are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. That's how he says it. Perverting the grace of God into sensuality who are denying the lordship of Jesus and Jude, Jude, what he says is he says, I, I wanted to write to the church about their common faith, but instead I found it necessary to appeal to Christians to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. And Jude says of those who would pervert the truth and deny Jesus that they were designated for condemnation, even though they're part of the church. And Jude gives three examples of God's historic condemnation. He references Israel in the wilderness. He references the angels who have betrayed God and left their proper dwelling and left the authority they had. And then he references Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is seriously like a really heavy letter. And you can imagine if you were like one of the people who, who received this letter, you might start wondering to yourself, man, like if, if God's wrath is, is poured out upon Israel, and it's poured out upon those fallen angels, and it's poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. And now Jude's telling me it's going to be poured out on false teachers of the church who deny the lordship of Jesus. You might start to wonder, what hope is there for me? What keeps me from the wrath of God? See, this is what the world does not understand. They look at the church and they say, you guys in the church, you're just as wicked as anyone in the world. And a lot of the time, they're right. So what keeps us from condemnation? Jude knew what set Christians apart. And he led with it in his letter. Do you remember that? Remember what he led with? He, addressed, he addresses his letter to those who are called, those who are beloved, those who are kept. Though, in all those things, like look at those, look at those three things. To be, uh, to be called, to be beloved, and to be kept, what can we say of those three things? Are they not all passive actions? Jude could have addressed his letter to those who responded to God's call. To those who loved God back well. And to those who kept themselves from evil. But that's not what Jude says, is it? Jude says to those who are called. To those who are loved. To those who are kept kept by God and for Jesus. It's all about what God does in all of these things, is it not? We who were called by God escape God's just wrath for our sin because God has called us and because he loves us and because he keeps us for Jesus. And let me tell you, friends, that faith in Jesus is the evidence of that call. I guess my question for you this morning is, is Jesus your Lord? Have you trusted him with your life? Do you hold tight to the truth that was delivered once for all in the gospel?
Or are you denying the lordship of Jesus, the one God has called, is kept in faith? And faith in Jesus saves sinners from God's wrath. Thanks be to God that he has called you and me to believe, that he chose to keep us, to be loved, and that no one can take us from his hands. Now here is the point of today. Here, I would say, would be the central message of the first seven verses of Jude. You ready? Pick up your staff, open your eyes, and contend for the faith. That's the call of Jude. Let's pray. Uh, Father, so much in here uh, to be thankful for your call upon our lives, the way that you love us, the way that you keep us. But the action we are called today by Jude is, is, to, is to contend for the faith that was delivered once and all to the saints. Father, will you give us wisdom to know what is truth and what is not and give us boldness to stand firm against it, especially when it comes from the church. We pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, amen. amen.